What do you do when your life gets hard? Where do you turn? What's your immediate reaction when pain or suffering or challenge comes your way? Now, these are mostly rhetorical questions for right now, but I want you to think honestly about them and think about what your answers to those questions might be. Now, everyone's answers are almost certainly going to be different, especially if you're approaching suffering or pain or grief from the worldview of a Christian or not. And let me just say this. If you're listening right now and you don't personally identify as a believer, please don't stop listening. Today's episode might just be for you. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an incredible person who is trying to make a positive impact, not only through your personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Daniel Grothy, the teaching pastor at the influential New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and the author of the book, Chasing Wisdom, The Lifelong Pursuit of Living Well, that draws upon his 10-year apprenticeship with Eugene Peterson. That's the guy who translated the message translation of the Bible. Daniel and his wife, Lisa, live on a small hobby farm outside of Colorado Springs with their three children, Lillian, Wilson, and Wakely. To learn more, you can go to danielgrothy.com and he is of course on all of the social media networks now let me tell you I don't say this very often this is probably one of my favorite interviews I have ever done it will certainly go down as one of my top favorites of all time Daniel was just so amazing he was funny um, we talk a lot about homesteading right at the beginning which is just it was it was very funny talking to him about his hobby farm but also he just goes into so many of the challenges that he went through at his early on in his career at New Life Church and so much more you are going to absolutely love him so without further ado on to my chat with Daniel Daniel I am so excited to have you on the show today how are you sir I am well you know locked down surviving coronavirus <laughs> madness the world has been turned upside children are everywhere but we're making it work you're making it work you're coming all the way from Colorado Springs Colorado one like the place that to me is the epitome of it looks like a postcard everywhere you go and yeah. now one yes. thing before we get into the Daniel 101 one thing I know about you is that you and your family have like a small hobby farm yes we do live out on an old uh homestead ranch that was owned by the same family for over 100 years three generations and it's been a working ranch for hundreds of years now so we're about 15 minutes outside of town so I, it takes me 15 minutes to get to work but it feels like you're gone so yeah uh, we bought it with my sister and brother-in-law and another family and we've got six horses 10 goats anywhere from 40 to 50 pigs, depending on when we send them to slaughter, uh, 150 chickens and dogs and cats and all kinds of stuff everywhere. So we're working big gardens. Um, yeah, having a good time out here. That's awesome. How many acres is it? It's 120 acres that oh we my. split between three families. So we got it for a steal of a deal, went in together and, uh, Fun story. Uh, hopefully, you'll you'll not have to delete me from your no, podcast. No, I love this. But my daughter called me. She's twelve, almost thirteen. And the other night, we said, "Hey, 
be at dinner at six, like show up, the dinner will be on the table, hot and ready, have your hands washed, six o'clock sharp. Yes, sir. So six o'clock, my phone rings and it's my brother-in-law's cell phone just next door and Lillian is on the line and she said, dad, I'm so sorry, I'm gonna be late for dinner, uh, probably 15, 20 minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, we've already had this conversation. Why are you gonna be late? And she said, well, dad, we aren't done castrating the little piglets yet. And it's gonna take about 15 more minutes. (laughs) over there castrating piglets that are two weeks old, sewing them back up. I mean, she's got a box knife and she's got sterilizer and she's stitching the piglets back up. And then she came in and washed her hands and sat down to dinner and I almost vomited uh, thinking about her being at the dinner. So never a dull moment out here on Quiet Waters Ranch. I am, okay, so in my head, as you were setting that story up, there are a lot of directions that I thought it could go. That is not the one that I, even Lisa and I, my wife, she said, when did you ever think your 12-year-old was going to call you and tell you she was going to be late to dinner because she's not done castrating the piglets? It, we never thought that sentence would be made. So, I am cracking up. That is amazing. Well, I think, I feel like, I wish my husband co-hosted this podcast with me sometimes yeah. because I feel like you and my husband would be immediate friends because my I husband's like dream <laughs> is to own a, own a farm. Like he, yeah. every single day is like, he's on all of these like uh, listservs for land yeah. options. Yeah. And yeah. like, we are aggressively saving for land because he's like, I want a homestead and I want right. to live off the land. And so like, here we are in a suburb on, you know, a quarter of an acre <laughs> and we have like three massive garden plots. We have, uh, you know, two apple trees, a peach tree, two blueberry bushes, yeah. a blackberry bush. And he, and we, you know, we bought, we have a deep freezer full of uh, grass fed beef from a local farm. Yes. Like he is, yeah. he's, he's trying it. If we, if our HOA. We people's freezers with grass fed yes. beef and, and pork from yes. our place. And it's yes. bringing conversations with our kids that yeah. are, are conversations that are shaping their lives and they understand how the world works. They understand biology. Yep. They understand anatomy. Then there's not going to be some seventh grade boy who's going to say anything that shot a little 10 year old son. <laughs> Well, like he he's seen it. He knows. He learned how God <laughs> thing to work. So it's been fun. Well, when your twelve year olds castrating piglets before dinner, I'm just gonna say, like, there's not a whole lot that you're not talking about at home. Right. Um, well, that's amazing. Anyway, okay. Well, we could do an entire podcast about your hobby farm. Um, that's amazing. Uh, I would love to visit it. And yeah, um, I'm I'm a little bit jealous. Um, mm. but obviously, in addition to being a uh, farmer growthy, uh, mm-hmm. you also are a pastor. You're an author. You studied under one of a modern day, you know, kind of liturgical hero for a lot of people. Um, and Eugene Peterson. There's a lot that you you do and have done. So, uh, Daniel, I'm going to have you give us the Daniel 101. So tell us who you yeah. are and kind of how you got to where you are today. Daniel Wilson Grothy. I'm 37 years old, originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. I'm a, the son of two pastors who've been pastors for 44 years. So I grew up in church. I grew up unlocking the doors at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. And then we had a Sunday night service. So at 10 p.m. after we closed the church up, we would lock the doors. We had Wednesday night service. We had Thursday night choir rehearsal. We had Saturday band rehearsal. My dad was the worship leader. So I was in church 
all the time. I thought every four-year-old was making hospital visits and going to nursing homes. So that's a that's a part of my story. I'm a, a musician. I, I've uh, recorded and toured, written songs, traveled the world. Uh, a band called Gunger years ago, Beautiful Things, uh, recorded on that album and nominated for three grants. Yeah. So, okay, this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so music is a big part of my story, uh, but I grew up, I uh, played some college sports, basketball, um, but just been a, a son of the church, and I knew pretty early on God made me to do this work as well. So graduated college at Orange University at 22, got married to Lisa, and 12 days later, we threw everything we had in a little Penske truck and drove to Colorado Springs to start working at New Life Church. So been here 15 years, been married to Lisa 15 years, three little kids. So that's Daniel 101. Wow. Okay. So I knew a lot of that. Didn't know the musician part. You really are a, like a Daniel of all trades or something like that. <laughs> um, so obviously, you know, having grown up in the church and having had, you know, being a pastor running in the family, you know, there is always that conversation and there's that cliche about PKs, preacher's kids, yeah. and yeah. how a lot of times they run from the church. What do you think it was for you where you didn't? run from the church? Or maybe you had a, a season where you were like, is this for me? At one point, did you know that this was also a calling for you? My parents were brilliant in that they didn't ever make it feel like it was the family business. Hmm. And they didn't put expectations on us. And here's the thing that I think they did that was magical is they didn't treat us in a way that we were getting drug around to their work where we had to sort of entertain ourselves, they led us in a way that it was sort of our family calling that, hey, mm. we, we do this together, you're invited in, you get to put your hands on it, you get to practice. So I was, my dad was the worship leader at a 10,000 member church in Tulsa, and I was five years old over there on the drum kit playing the altar calls, you know? And yeah. I just thought, again, every five-year-old on the planet was doing this yeah. and, and getting to go to the band rehearsals. So for me, they just invited us into their lives and they let us learn crafts and mm. practice and hone our skills. Uh, so I never, ever felt like God stole my parents from me. Mm. And I've talked to a lot of pastors, kids who resent the church because, uh, you know, they sensed that God was ripping their parents away or their parents were disinterested in their lives. Or So I just had any, my parents didn't give me anything to push off of. Mm. And I think that's one of the great things that parents can make sure you're thinking about. Like, are you giving your kids a reason to stiff arm Jesus or stiff arm the church or stay away from? And they, they lived beautiful lives. They were the same in our home as they were at church. And I, I think a lot of kids see the split personality of their parents. You know, they're one thing on Sunday and they're a completely thing Monday through Saturday. My parents lived wholesome lives that were attractive to us. I love that. I love that. I mean, I, I mean, I wrote that down. Like, are you giving your kids a reason to stiff arm Jesus? Because mm -hmm. that's something that I, I think a lot about. Um, I did not grow up a Christian. I didn't become a Christian until I was 25. And, you know, my husband is kind of like you, not that he was a son of pastors, but I mean, he grew up Southern Baptist and missed like five Sundays his entire life. And I think it was like for the flu. Um, exactly. And uh, letters for those Sundays. Yes. Yeah. 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 He had like, yeah, he had to have permission slips to miss. Um, same thing, like Sunday morning, Sunday night, and, uh, you know, even Wednesday night service and all of that. And so we've talked a lot about just our different upbringings and, and how, you know, we're really passionate about raising our kids in a way that gives them a hunger for Jesus at an early age and doesn't 
turn them away. And, um, and so that's a really difficult thing to do well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let the little children come to me, said Jesus, you know? So it's not just, oh, the precious little moment when Jesus was out on the streets and kids ran up to him. Like, hey, parents, what my parents did was they, they mm -hmm. let their four little children come to Jesus. And we went with them everywhere and they instructed us and they gave us opportunities to fail and they gave us opportunities to practice. And you look up after a decade of doing that and you go, this is my native territory. Mm -hmm. what, what else will I do with my life? So let them come. Mm, mm, that's so good. So you became a pastor at uh, New Life Church. You've been there 15 years. But when, uh, you know, I know that uh, the road there for the past 15 years hasn't always been easy. Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I came to New Life and we were at that time, like the 90s bulls. We were winning everything. I mean, everything <laughs> we touched. It was prospering. We, Did you, you know, just we watch just, uh, The Last Dance? Okay. I married a girl from Chicago. MJ was my guy. So we, you know, we've been watching. So yeah. anyway, we were, we were on top of the world. And I say that now sort of ironically and tongue in cheek, but our senior pastor was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, a 30 million member group mm. representative body. You know, when Washington DC was debating legislation on same sex marriage or on this or on that or abortion, they would call us and say, what does the church think? Not what does new life think, but what does America's Christian population think. So we were the sort of the speaking head, the talking head for the evangelicals. Um, Mel Gibson, when he released The Passion of the Christ, he flew out to Colorado Springs on a jet and stood in front of 3,000 pastors at our church for our conference and, and premiered. And it was, wow. it was just intoxicating. Uh, George W. Bush, when he was president, Skyped into our pastor's conference and joked around. We were we were the 90s bulls yeah. and people wanted to know what we thought. And so we were riding high. And then one day, two years into me being here, the bottom fell out and our senior pastor was caught in a scandal. Salacious. It was on the front page of every international news media because mm -hmm. of how salacious it was. And we, we all of a sudden went from being the big dogs to being the people walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We discovered in that time we were $26 million in debt. You'll remember in 2006 and seven, the economy tanked nationally. So then our, our, the bottom falls out at New Life again. We had to fire 44 people overnight. And we got a new senior pastor 10 months after we lost our senior pastor. And on his 100th day, we were just beginning to build trust and the wind was shifting to where it was at our back again. And like, okay, maybe God is with us and maybe we're gonna make it. We're starting to believe that after a long stretch of hope. And on his 100th day, it was a Sunday morning, I was standing down at the end of our children's hallway and we just finished our second service and all of a sudden I hear the most horrific sound you can imagine, not just at church, but anywhere. And that's gunshots. There's a man that stormed onto our camp with an assault rifle, a thousand rounds of ammunition, and he's running through our children's hallway, spraying bullets everywhere. Parents and their little kids diving under desks and in the bathroom, hiding and locking Sunday school classes. He had killed two teenage girls in the parking lot, sisters, 16 and 18 years old, Rachel and Stephanie Works. And then he stormed into the building. And so I run into our senior pastor's office, mind you, three months into the job. And I say, there's a shooter on campus. And so someone runs into our, his office with a gun, says, get under the desk, you know, we're freaking out. And a security guard runs to, toward this shooter and shoots him in the leg. He falls down and then blows his brains out in our children's hallway. Oh my goodness. So we've got a double murder-suicide 
13 months after we lost our senior pastor, we're 26 million in debt, we're firing people left and right, and now people are scared to come to church. So I didn't think, I'm 25, we just had our first baby, I didn't think it could get any worse. And so for me, I go into a, this is where the, the, the story sort of shifts for me with Eugene, I go into Goodwill on a Monday morning, it's my day off. Pastors are trying to become human again on Mondays, and yeah. so that's what I was doing. Go to the used bookshelf and and find this book on the shelf. It says The Contemplative Pastor, and I was like, Eugene H. Peterson. I think he translated the message. So I bought it. It was 99 cents. It's 171 pages, and that Monday, I read it straight through. It, was, it, was, it grabbed my imagination, and so I thought, I've got to write this guy because he is writing— uh, a vision of the pastoral vocation that I was born to live, and I've seen us live a different way here in this church, and we've got to get back on track. And so I wrote Eugene a letter that day after reading it, and I, I just said, could I spend a day with you? Wow. Okay. There's a lot I feel like yeah. I need to um, unpack there. Um, yeah. I'm just one, uh, thank you for sharing all of that. And I know that that is, there's a lot of really personal details in there. Um, there's a lot of people that were affected. I mean, these are, these were news stories. Right. I mean, I remember the shooting in 2007. I mean, I remember, I remember that. And cause it was all kind of around the time that, I mean, I'm, I'm from Virginia. And so this was all kind of around the time that the Virginia uh, tech shooting had happened. And I just, I remember how dark everything felt. And um, this was even before I became a believer. And so I was, but I just, I remember feeling at that time and I was like, who goes to a church? And I mean, obviously so much has happened since then at that moment, but I didn't, I guess I did not realize at the time how much your church had been going through. And one thing I'm really interested, and I don't even know if, you know, it, maybe you have an answer for this. I hope you do. But, you know, uh, over the years, uh, there's been a lot of controversies in the church, just kind of the capital C church, the church worldwide. A lot of, you know, individual churches will go through, you know, different things with, with maybe it's, a, you know, controversy with a senior pastor. Maybe it's, you know, a controversial stance on something, whatever it is. The enemy just loves to take down the church. Let's just be honest. And a lot of times that is where you start to see what we call... <laughs> the mass exodus. And so you right. see people, they begin church shopping. They, they say they're, they're done with the church. They're not going to, you know, if you're working at that church, you're gone, you're going to search for a job elsewhere. You're still there 15 yeah. years. And you've been through a lot with this church. I'm curious, is that obviously it was, it had to have been somewhat intentional <laughs> along the way. Um, but what do you think it was for you that kept you there to really stick it out in the midst of some pretty big storms. Well, I think you have to have a developed theology of suffering. And we don't really have that in the 21st century Western church. We have Jesus has come so to hang on a cross so that I don't have to carry one. We think that Jesus is our, our rescue hatch, our, our get out of jail free card, that Jesus is happy clappy, Santa Claus meets Mr. Rogers. And if anything bad happens to you, what's wrong with your faith? What did you do wrong? What, like, uh, you aren't experiencing the blessed life times a million all the time? Well, so we don't have a developed theology of suffering. And Jesus in John 16, famously, in this world, you will have trouble. Like, 
do you know that I got you set up for this? Do you know that if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross? Do you know that if you follow me, there will be a Calvary with your name on it? Do you know if you follow me, you're going to get tucked in the tomb from time to time, but resurrection. So take heart. I have overcome the world. But I think we've gotten real soft in the 21st century West. And we think that if any kind of trouble washes ashore in our life, that uh, this Jesus thing is a scam or our faith is weak, but Jesus is like, are you you serious? (laughs) So a theology of suffering matters. And then I will say this, look, people in the name of Jesus have done incredible harm. Oh yeah. Let's just just say that we have earned our reputation at times. We We have driven people away that Jesus's heart breaks when we break someone else's heart in his name. So I get that. Uh, but this is where people throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is where people go, you know, I'm an ex-evangelical. Screw the church. I'm done. I'm walking away. And and I just think, how unaware of church history are we? Like, mm. do you understand that people were burned at the stake? Do you understand that people were taken into cathedrals and, and hung up? Do you understand that, like, it's been worse for a lot mm-hmm. of other people, and this just comes with the human condition. So if you've elevated someone to that place of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and then they fall, sure, your faith is going to be just rocked. But mm-hmm. if if you can actually receive people with a grain of salt and look through them and find the one who will never disappoint you, find the one who will never fall. Um, so I just think we've misplaced our hopes in celebrities. We've, we've wanted people to be our, I mean, this is the very first thing that Israel did. Give us a king yes yes we, we, we want we want these human figures to be everything for us and whenever we put someone up there it they're bound to fall so yes i know that there's a lot going on talk back to me there Oh my goodness. That is, well, one, the, that we haven't developed a theology of suffering is so good. Oh, that is so good. And yeah, because you're absolutely right. And that's been one of my biggest frustrations. And I think for me is just because of my own walk with Christ came out of a season of just extreme darkness and, you know, and just the bottom had fallen out. And I realized that like, I couldn't do things on my own anymore. And so I just finally listened to the still small voice of God going, Hey, you, you want to try things my way for a little bit? And I was like, fine. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was working. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing else is working. Like trying to do things my way has ended me in a really bad place. So let me try things, uh, you know, somebody else's way. And, you know, and then it's not like things all of a sudden got better or life got easy, but the way I handled grief and suffering changed immensely for me. And that's actually one of the things that I I wanted to talk with you about because, so in 2018, so I became a Christian in 2010 and, uh, you know, a lot in my life happened, but, you know, got married in 2012. My husband and I, everything was great. You know, we, we started having kids and, um, you know, but I, I felt like I'd kind of begun to reach this point in my my walk with Christ where I was, I don't want to say like plateauing, but I just felt like I was like, I need, I need something like something is missing and I don't know what it is. And, and I realized that I had gotten into a place where scripture, I hadn't gotten into a good habit of reading scripture and I, I wasn't really beginning to understand scripture as much as I wanted. And so in 2018, I was like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to yeah. read through the Bible chronologically in a year. And I'm going to do it in the message translation. That's what I'm going to do. And so I started on January 1st and um, I was reading in the message translation 
chronological. And for those that are listening that maybe, you're, you know, I know that I have uh, people who are not Christians that listen. And the message translation is just a translation of the Bible that was done by uh, Eugene Peterson. And it was done over from what I, the research I've done over about 20 years um, yeah, where yeah. he translated, he studied the Greek and the Hebrew and all this. And he, he translated it into kind of just very conversational language. And so I started uh, reading on January 1st. On January 30th of 2018, my husband and I lost our son, Elijah, um, during the second trimester of pregnancy. And um, so then that happened. And then less than five months later, um, within, well, within a month, got pregnant again. That was a whoopsie. Um, And then five months later, lost our son Malachi in the second trimester of pregnancy. And, um, and my word of the year that year was uh, the word focus. And at the beginning of the year, I really thought that my word was, was about like getting focused on work and not distracting myself and yada, yada, yada. And by about halfway through the year, I went, oh, no, it's actually I need to focus on God. Mm-hmm. And but when I started reading, I mean, it's amazing how I started reading through the Bible chronologically that year before any of that happened. And I committed to it and I ended, you know, God, he, he provided and I finished it um, actually early that year. And then this is actually right now, the third year that I'm doing it and reading through um, in the message translation. But doing that gave me a hunger and a drive to know God, to read his word, to just devour scripture more than anything in my entire life. And the message just, it fueled that for me. And I think it was because it, the way that it has been translated is in, into a way that just spoke to my soul. And I remember reading through Job while yeah. I am going through this loss. And then Eugene, he passes away in October of that year. And I bawled over this man yeah, that I never met. So anyway, that's a long setup to just kind of explain why this was something that I was really interested to talk with you about because you connected with Eugene and you kind of studied under him. And so I'd love it for you just kind of share how that came about because it's really unique. You sent him a letter um, and then yeah. how, the, you know, what, what are some of the things that you learned from him? Yeah. Well, the first thing is here's the first letter that he sent me back. Uh, got it here in the, <laughs> in the book and his, his, uh, you know, the mailbox and wow. there's this, you know, chicken scratch cursive that our grandparents learned, you know, what? Eugene. And he says, dear Daniel, yes, I'd be willing to spend a day with you here in Montana, period. And I'm about to lose my mind. And then the next sentence is, but not so fast. And he said, I want you to write a three page paper on what is church and a three page paper on what is pastor to see if we even have enough common ground to begin a conversation. Wow. And then he proceeds to just tear me to shreds with his letter. I mean, he he puts me through the gauntlet. He he goes for the jugular. I think he's trying to vet me and run me off. And then at the very end, he said, uh, if you think that we have enough common ground after these letters, then I'd be happy to have you. I just don't want it to be a touristy visit, the peace of our Lord, Eugene. And so from the very beginning, he said that began a 10 year back and forth with him. He made me rise up. He made me read. He made me write. He challenged me. He provoked me. He he asked good questions. He pastored me. He listened. But one of the things I told him on my last visit, just soon before he passed, I was sitting at his feet, literally on the floor. He had his feet up on the ottoman and he was, you know, just aging. And it, it was, you could tell he was coming to the end. And I said, Eugene, the best four words you ever said to me were, but not so fast. 
because you set the tone. You 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 helped me understand what if we were going to engage. Here's what the engagement's going to be like. Yeah, you're going to rise up. It's not going to be a cheap yes. I think the very worst thing in my book. I write a lot about sages, yeah. and this book, Chasing Wisdom, tells the story of me chasing Eugene. And I think a good sage knows how to make you work for it. A good mm-hmm. sage will not give cheap yeses. Will not. It, the worst thing he could have said to me was, "Yeah, Daniel, uh, I'm so sorry about your loss at your church. Why don't you come out next week?" From the time I wrote him the first letter to the time I showed up at his door for the first trip of my 10 trips, it was 507 days from first letter to first visit. And in that time, I read 30 books that he had recommended to me. I'd written these papers. We'd had phone calls. So Eugene, he he set the tone by saying, look, if we're going to do this, you're going to deny yourself and take up your cross. If you're going to do this, this is going to be a real meet. He was a Mr. Miyagi to little Daniel-san, and he was <laughs> teaching me how to wax on and wax off, and I hated it, and I wanted to quit at certain points, but he knew what he was building in me by making me fight for it and work for it. So wow. that's one of the things that I learned from Eugene is that anything worth doing is going to be worth doing with all your heart, and he wrote that book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction. And that was one of his great themes of his life that, you know, I I jokingly say that it only took Eugene 65 years to become an overnight success. Yeah, yeah. Nobody knew about him. You didn't know about Eugene Peterson. I didn't know about him until the message. He was faithfully serving the same congregation for 30 years in Bel Air, Maryland that nobody's ever heard of. 300 people translating the scriptures, preaching week in and week out, hospital visits. And then he translates a Bible and overnight Bono's calling him. Well, If he had blown up at 35 or 40, it would have crushed him. Mm. But at 65, after years and years and decades of obscurity, the Lord knew that he could trust Eugene with making him available to the world. And so I just, when I look at Eugene, he's to me a provocation for living slowly and faithfully and letting God do what he wants to do over the course of decades. I'm absolutely blown away by that. And uh, I love that you said it took him 65 years to become an overnight success. And I think that's just, that's one of those things that a lot of times people just forget is the work and the the suffering and the literal blood, sweat, and tears that goes into, um, goes into that work. Books. He'd written 30 books that nobody had ever heard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, Along Obedience made a nice little move and Run With the Horses about Jeremiah, but largely he was unknown. Yeah. And then the message comes out and, and whoa, who's this guy? And then Bono starts chasing him and Eugene turns down Bono multiple times. Bono was saying, hey, can we fly you out on a jet? Can we come see you? And he hung up and said, no. And who's this Bono? <laughs> he said, who's this Bono guy? Oh, no. Who's this son Bono? Goes, his, his son, who's, you know, I don't know, 50 at the time goes, that was Bono? That was Bono? Like, Dad, that's the greatest rock star in the world. And Eugene goes, you know, I was translating Isaiah. I couldn't go. <laughs> There's just a man who, who's just lived the right way. And he didn't oh. take any shortcuts. He didn't fake it. He, he wasn't looking for some sort of a cheap platform. He was committed to doing the work and living with vocational holiness. And over 65 years, the Lord says, you've been faithful with the little. Now I will make you ruler over me. So Gosh, yeah. that's not a word in and of itself. I don't know what is. Well, you you briefly mentioned it, but I I, I want to kind of talk a little bit more about it. And so you did. You you just released a book called Chasing Wisdom: The Lifelong Pursuit of Living Well, and uh, this really kind of just draws upon this whole ten year apprenticeship with Eugene and so much of what you've walked through as a pastor um, and and in the journey with your church. So kind of talk uh, about um, you know where did 
the idea for the book come from and uh, what it really, what, what sort of the biggest takeaway is for people from it? I was speaking at Windsor Castle in London. I got invited over in 2017 and at the castle, the queen is there, the flags up for the queen is in residence there, you know, that old song we used to, anyway. So I'm there and I give this talk on sages and it, for me, it was like an out-of-body experience. You know, in your work, sometimes there are just those moments where you mm -hmm. you hit a groove and you go, that's me. Mm -hmm. I was made to do that. Yeah. So I felt that way, you know, the delight of God in the talk. And I got on the plane the next day. I was flying home. I got out of the legal pad. And I just started jotting down. And in an hour, I had the outline to the book locked. And my friend was traveling with me and he had slept for the first hour and he woke up and he said, what have you been doing? I said, I showed him the legal pad. He said, you just did that. So anyway, I got back home and I met with my agent and he said, you know, whoa, write me the first two chapters. So I wrote that and he flipped and started sending it out. So for me, it was, I want to share what I've learned from Eugene. I want to share, I want people to know that you don't just have to live in your peer group and have tunnel vision and just hang out with your friends, that there are these sages and saints and elders, you know, in every ancient Near Eastern society, there were the elders at the city gates. And you would walk into town and if you had a dispute, if you needed wisdom, if you needed understanding, if you needed someone to help you think, the elders who had already done their work, they had already lived their lives and they'd logged all these miles with God, they would help you think through what an appropriate response to life is. And I want young folks like you and me to know that there are these folks out there, they're hidden in plain sight, they're not gonna chase you down, but if you will go chase them down, they will help save your life, they'll put you on track, they'll show you the way. I love that so much. There are definitely, I, um, so I'm a part of uh, BSF Bible Study Fellowship. And one of the things that I love so much about doing BSF is, you know, in the past five, six years that I've been doing it in my discussion group every year. I mean, one, I love how does, you know, at least at my class in particular, where I am, it's so diverse, um, both yeah. racially, um, ethnically, and also kind of generationally. And every single year in my discussion group, there's always one or two women who are saints of the faith, who mm -hmm. when they don't answer every question in the discussion group, they don't talk every single time, but when they do, I listen. Bam. And yeah. I go, that is a woman who I, I want to be you when I grow up. Like yes. that is, that is who I want to be when I grow up is I don't care about some of these, you know, quote unquote Christian celebrities. Right. Um, right. I'm sure that, you know, some of them are great, but like, you, sweet Alice, who is 87 yes. in my BSF yep. group, who is widowed and like has raised so many children. And like you've been like, you are just, you are who I want to listen to. And so I just, I love, I love that perspective. And, and you're right. Some of the people that, um, that we can really learn the most from are the ones that will never make it on the front page of a newspaper. Yes. And the saints and security who have been tested in the fields of obscurity mm. and their life stood the test of time. Those are the people that you should chase. Those are the people you should apprentice yourself to because they're not, they're not looking for the wrong things. They've got yeah. all the unholy ambition out of them. And if you will come close and if you'll ask good questions, if you'll dignify them and honor them mm. and then just wait to listen, they will give you wisdom that it took them 87 years to gain. So mm. ask. Yes. Yes. When I was in college, 
I volunteered at a local nursing home, uh, you know, near my campus. And I loved it because I would just go and have these conversations with, I mean, I did, I did do some volunteering in, uh, kind of the, the ward where there was a lot of folks with Alzheimer's and, and dementia, which they were some of my just favorites because they were just the sweetest and it would be the same conversation every time we went, but they, you know, they were just the sweetest people and, <laughs> and the conversations that we would have and, and the lessons that we would, you know, that we would learn. And, and there are some of the, the, those things that I took away that I'll never forget and yeah. advice that they give that I, yes. I'll never forget. And, um, can I just jump in and just yeah, say, please. one of the things that I think is a lost art is learning how to ask good questions. Yeah. We, we, we don't know how to do it anymore. We're looking at screens, we're texting, we're, so the lost art of conversation and drawing out. And I think, you know, out in the oil fields, they've got these pumps that are just yeah. doing this and they're priming the pump. And one, one of these days it's going to strike and it's going to draw that oil out. Mm-hmm. And I think good questions are like priming the pump for these saints and you'll hit something and they'll say something to you that will shape your life, that will change you, that will transform you. So I think learning to ask, okay, where did you come from? Tell me your story. What are some of the greatest memories of your life? What are some of the most challenging seasons? I'm 37. What would you tell me to be aware of in this stage of my life? If you'll just ask some of these simple questions, you'll find the gold. So learn how to prime the pump. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good, man. I could ask you like seventy-five more questions. Um, and clearly, someday. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna have to do it. Ep- we'll we'll do it. We're gonna do it. Episode two, a part two. Well, okay. So before uh, we transition to just kind of the get to know you questions, um, I just wanted to just kind of ask, sort of your your you know, in fifteen years in really in in ministry and in, in the ten years that you you know studied under uh, Eugene, and I love how you kind of shared how he just he put you through the ringer, and also kind of gathering one of the things you said earlier, where you just said, you know, Jesus came on to to hang on a cross, so we don't have to carry one. Like that's how a lot of people think. But, but no, that's, that's, that's inaccurate theology. That's bad theology. Gathering all of that, what has been maybe one of the things that you have really thought about how you want to take that and how you want to lead your family? Because I am really realizing so much in this current season that we're in with COVID-19. You know, yes, we have an influence and we've been given a platform and, and obviously through this podcast and you through your church and through writing a book. And um, I'm also in the process of writing a book and, you know, we've been given all of these platforms. Sometimes we forget to take the advice we're giving other people and use it on our own families. Right. So I'm curious... <laughs> What are some of the things in this season, maybe in, in through COVID or, or through anything that you have really kind of taken away from all of your experiences and how you apply that into leading your family? What does it profit a person to gain the whole evangelical world and lose their family? Right. My children uh, with Lisa, our children are the three greatest gifts we will give to the world. Mm-hmm. But books congregation, whatever, speaking, all of that stuff is going to burn up. Mm-hmm. My children are the greatest gift God has ever given us, and they are the greatest gift we will in turn release into the world. Yep. And so we've got 18 years with them under our roof, and these are the holiest, most sacred, most important. The stakes are as high as they've ever been years in our lives. Yeah. And so talk to them. I think a lot of times we think our job is to protect them from the world. Hmm. There is a there is an element of protection, absolutely. And do we want to invite their imaginations into layers that are too deep for them too early? 
No way. So hear what I'm saying but, yeah. and hear what I'm not saying. But I think our job is to take them into life and to yeah. show how life works and to talk about the complexities, to help them develop nuance, to help them think through and, and uh, be logical about life. And so I, I tell my kids stories all the time. Mm. And then I ask them, what would you do? I, I was sitting outside with my son the other night, just under the stars. And I was telling him some of the conversations I have with people as a pastor and reasons people show up in my office. And I'll say, Wilson, what do you think? What would you do in that scenario? And where do you think they might've made a, a better decision that could have saved it? And, and he, so he, he realizes how high the stakes are. So I think our response is I've got to protect my little precious boy from yeah. the, no, actually my job is to invite him into how life works and to shepherd him along the way and help him find his way through and think through situations. So think realizing that these are our greatest gifts and our greatest gift to the world and not just trying our best not to give our leftovers to our most important people. So I'm, I'm going to do my very best to give you my very best. And I'm going to tell myself all the time that this is my greatest ministry. Jesus gives us the smallest concentric circle and then watches how we do with it. Mm. And then when we do that work, he'll go, okay, I've seen you. I'll give you a little bit more. I'll make you ruler over a little bit more. But if we fail here, I mean, this is Titus and Timothy three. Like if you can't manage your own family, like what are you trying to do going to manage God's house? So like mm. start at home, give them your best. Oh man. I think I needed that more than anybody else. So for the listeners, <laughs> if that wasn't for you, it's okay. It was for me. I'm preaching to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think kind of going to your point about how like, you know, all the, the books and the speaking and all that kind of stuff can just poof. And I mean, I think we're seeing that in this, in this season, like when we're all locked down in our houses and, and we're on in quarantine and people can't travel to go speak and conferences are canceled and concerts are canceled and all these yeah. things. And so we are just with our families 24 seven. And yes, it can be really hard, but at the same time, like, you know, we can sit here all day and we can talk about the negatives and we can focus on how, how, how difficult this is, or we can also take it and use it as an opportunity to say, you know what, we're making memories. I mean, right now yeah. my kids are jumping on a bounce house in our living room. When would that ever happen? <laughs> like they're like, my six-year-old was like, this is the greatest day ever. Awesome. Like, this is awesome. You know, um, we've done, you know, I get to have lunch with my husband every single day and he's right. not in an right. office. I mean, and that we've is family dinners in a row. When yeah. have we ever done that in 13 years of having kids? We haven't. So these, this is a moment we'll never get back yeah. and make the most of the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's not belittling the difficult situations that a lot of sure. people are in, sure. um, but it's, it's taking the opportunity to be like, you know what, I'm going to focus on the positives here. Like here's, here's what I am gaining out of this and, and all of that. So man, that was so good. Okay. So this is the part where I just ask a couple fun, get to know you questions. Uh, yeah. Obviously we've been getting to know you, but just dive in a little bit deeper or maybe yeah. we're going to the surface. I don't know. However yeah. you want to interpret it. Um, <laughs> so now I love to ask people what books they're reading, but you know, something I know about you is that in studying under Eugene, he was uh, really uh, intentional in instructing you to read the dead people yes. and uh, kind of the wisdom of the old library, so to speak. So I'm curious uh, if you have a recommendation of maybe a favorite dead person that you like to read and read from. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, Thomas Akempis is the Imitation of Christ is unbelievably good. Okay. Uh, St. Augustine's Confessions is, is a landmark 
in Christian literature from the 300s. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, I'm reading right now Dallas Willard's biography, Becoming Dallas Willard. Mm. So he is now officially one of the dead people, even though he's lived in our time. And and this is just a guy that you want to be like. Mm. So for me, it's apprenticing yourself literarily to the people that have lived beautiful, provocative, convincing lives that mm. call you up. So yeah, those are a couple. The, the Imitation of Christ, St. Augustine's Confessions, and uh, maybe something like Becoming Dallas Willard. I like it. I like it. Okay. Do you have any unusual talents? Do I have any? Other than the fact that you're a pastor and a musician and a farmer, (laughs) all these things. I mean, those I would say castrating piglets. I don't know. That's (laughs) (laughs) a big Jim Carrey fan growing up as a kid. So, you know, a lot of fire marshal bill imitation (laughs) ace ventura and so it's not pretty but you know hey i like it i like it i like it okay of all of your pet peeves which one is the weirdest pet peeves oh man i don't know which one's the weirdest ah I'm trying to think through my pet peeves right now. The things, you know, I, I can think of really because we're all locked down. Yeah. Is my children are nonstop making noise. I, I don't, I Always. ask my wife, is that you, you two? It, yes. Like I, I say, are our kids different than everybody else? Or <laughs> does everyone have kids that make noise all the time? I can't even hear myself think my ears need a sabbatical. Yes. So, um, <laughs> yes. I, it's so funny. I was saying to my husband a couple weeks ago, I was just like, I really think that from the time our children wake up until the time they fall asleep, they are emitting sound. Like nonstop. Not singing, dancing, like talking, vocalizing. It's just so much sound. A funny thing that happens is my wife's a lefty and she's one of the 10%. Uh, you too? Me too. So I'm having to turn everything in our kitchen around all the time. When she's working <laughs> on something, I'm having to shift things and go, you did that like a lefty. And she goes, I am a lefty. <laughs> so anyway. My husband and I are both lefties, but both of our kids are righties. So that's weird. I don't know. I don't understand it. Okay. So, you know, if you were, you love basketball, if you were a professional athlete, what would your like hype walk-up song be like when they're calling you when they're like starting <laughs> starting forward is daniel grothy <laughs> and uh they play you, you they play your walk-up song what is it uh phil collins is i can feel it coming in tonight is it the drum part yes as a drummer that's just it's iconic yes so. That's the best part. That's that's the only reason I listen to that song is I fast forward so I can get to that part and just air drum it out. I love it. Okay. And then my last question is a question I ask uh, all my guests. And that is, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? And for you, you know, you could kind of interpret that as, as having a ministry with purpose or what, it, what does that mean to you? What does that look like? Well, we've been small business owners uh, as well. We did for seven years, owned and operated a, a drop-in child care up at a storefront. And so we sold that a few years ago. So we know both sides, the ministry yeah. and the small business. Uh, to do it with purpose. Uh, I think there is an element of it having to require the very best of you. Mm-hmm. So if all you're doing is giving a great service to people, but you're, you hate it, 
I think I think missing something there. So I think it's the confluence of a need that the world has met up with coming to the intersection of the thing I was made to do that, mm-hmm. that I get out of bed in the morning doing. So if you get out of bed in the morning wanting to do something that nobody needs, that's a problem. Yep. If, if, if you do something that everyone needs, but you hate it and you lose your soul in doing it, that's a problem. So I think it's finding that nexus of this is what God made me for and I'm doing it with all my heart. It's requiring the very best of my faculties. It makes me rise to the occasion. So that personal side met with I'm actually helping people. I'm doing meaningful work that's marking the world, that's making people's lives better. So I think if you can find that intersection, you are you are living in the blessing of God. Mm, man, that is good. That is so good. Daniel, this has been just truly a treat. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule with with pastoring and, uh-huh. and pasturing. And so, I mean, there's, there's a lot happening. So thank you so much for coming on the show. You do great work and thanks so much for having me. Okay, friend, I would love to know what you loved about this episode or maybe something that you learned. If you do, let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring incredible entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you are a regular listener of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in week in and week out. And thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, or wherever you listen to podcasts and click that subscribe button. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you just take a moment to leave a review for me? Leaving a review really just helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. As always, this show is produced by the amazing team at Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening and go do something good with purpose on purpose. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose.